you know, society, they like the way this guy makes ice cream, but the other guy, they don't like his ice cream that much, and they don't buy it, so it uh, fades out. What's that? Supply and demand. Free enterprise. Competition. The profit bonus. Down on the economy, stupid. Where is it? From everywhere, everywhere. Hello and welcome to this new episode of Everyday Economics, hosted by Justin LaRue, Lanny Zrill, and Grégoire Maillard. In the news today, we're going to talk about IKR and its new initiative. After that, we're going to talk about the main topic of the day, which is about risk. And finally, Eugenie, one of our listeners, contacted us and we will answer to a voice message. As a reminder, if you want to participate in the following episode by writing about something we said, or if you want to talk about a specific topic, please send us a voice message on Instagram or by Messenger, or simply by email, and you may be in the next episode. And before starting this episode, if you want to support us, you can give us 5 stars on Apple Podcasts, and it will be much appreciated. IKEA, the world's biggest furniture business, will buy back some of your used furniture with its new initiative. What is it? Well, around the world, 27 countries will now give the customers the possibility to sell their old IKEA furniture in exchange of a discount price for new purchases. And IKEA say after that initiative that they hope that customers will take a stand against excessive consumption and hope it will have a good impact on sustainable development. Also, this initiative will be launched in order to coincide with Black Friday, which is one of the symbols of excessive consumption. So I think that subject is pretty great because we can have many things to talk about. Uh, one of the first things I wanted to ask you guys was, you know, last time we said that we should never forget that companies have for main target to, to increase our profit. So do you think that this is the case here or is it greenwashing or is it a good thing? I, I think it's definitely a case of a, a company doing what's best to increase its profits and trying to make it look like they're saving the world at the same time. Uh, to me, that's what it sounds like, but it, but it's a, it's a very smart way to do it, you know, and uh, What's happening here is that there's um, there's a way now for them through this used furniture practice where people turn in their old IKEA furnitures and depending on how the quality of it, they get a rebate up to 50% off of IKEA products. It's not They don't just get money back, they get 50% off IKEA products. And so it makes, it makes it very much cheaper for these people who turn in IKEA furniture to go buy more furniture. It also makes it uh, cheaper for people who are going to buy the resold furniture because IKEA is going to resell the, the good quality the, the good quality furniture that's been turned in. It makes it cheaper for them as well. So that just by doing that, IKEA has created two new segments of consumers, the people who, who already have IKEA furniture and who are turning it in, and the people who are buying used furniture. And what it's doing, it's really lowering the price for these two segments while not lowering the price of the new furniture. So that's really typically price discrimination. You have several segments of customers and you're able to charge different prices for the same, roughly the same item. Do you think that there's a price discrimination uh, with the, the base of consumers? Or do you think they're also expanding the base of consumers with, uh, with new customers that will, uh, in the past, um, only buy a second-handed furniture, but now they can buy IKEA, IKEA's ones? Well, my take on this is that, so this one segment that already has IKEA furniture is already kind of a, a, a customer of theirs, so it's not a new segment. But the people who are buying used furniture, 
use IKEA furniture is most likely people who could not afford new furniture, meaning that now they have access to it. They're able to maybe appreciate the furniture that they now have and possibly in, in their next purchases, if they ever are needing new furniture and if they have the money for it, they might be tempted to go buy IKEA furniture. So it's a way to get them inside the IKEA uh, ecosystem in a way. Yeah, absolutely. And and so, of course, that means that in this situation, we should expect um, to overall for IKEA to have more customers, right? As, you know, they, uh, you know, segment their market into three segments. Uh, you know, of course, some people will just move from, you know, the regular new customers to being people purchasing uh, repurchased uh, or uh, the used furniture. Um, but they're also, like you said, attract people from outside who wouldn't have normally bought IKEA new, but might now uh, buy it used. And so actually one of the really interesting things here that relates back uh, to what Greg mentioned about greenwashing was the way that we could try to assess whether or not this policy is actually good for the environment uh, has to do with, you know, how much furniture do we expect to get sold under this new, you know, market segmentation. And so, you know, one of the margins that's really being manipulated here is on people who, um, you know, have currently IKEA furniture and, you know, are contemplating buying new furniture. Well, they've changed the timeline for this on people, right? Previously, you know, you might wait until your Billy bookcase, you know, disintegrates into sawdust. Uh, whereas now you might say, oh, actually, uh, my bookcase is still in pretty good shape. Uh, maybe I should, you know, instead of moving it to a new apartment, right, and risking damaging it, um, you know, I'll bring it back and I'll go get a new bookcase, a brand new one. And so you end up, you know, consuming the original bookcase for less uh, amount of time and buying a new one. Meanwhile, you know, that original bookcase lives on with another human being, but it would have been there in the first place. What's new is the new bookcase you bought. And so because of the way it affects people in this margin, I, I am concerned that this is actually not just going to increase IKEA's profit through price uh, uh, discrimination, as would be possible given how they segment the market, but it is also going to increase the quantity of furniture they produce and sell. And in particular, when we talk about these people in this kind of middle margin, right, it's uh, people consuming things they wouldn't otherwise have consumed. And that is very much against the idea of, uh, you know, being eco-friendly. And so it really does make me concerned that overall this increases the amount of furniture being produced and consumed. Uh, and not necessarily in, in the way, you know, and, and not in a way that uh, is good for the environment. Yeah, and I think we can also kind of question the timing of this. Uh, so why are they doing this now? They could have implemented this years ago. You know, this company started in 1948. There's, you know, it's been ample time to do, you know, reselling old furniture is not, it's not, a, it's not an original idea. It's something that could have happened a long time ago, but it's happening now. And one interpretation could be that you know currently we're in the in the middle of this um, of this pandemic that has hit financially a lot of people and it has it has not hit people equally. Some people are still are still well to do. They're still able to buy new IKEA furniture, you know, especially since they're stuck at home and they kind of want to maybe update their furniture. And uh, but other people are more hit uh, have been financially hit uh, by quite a bit. And so you know it seems that the timing here for IKEA to start with this uh, this uh, this maneuver is uh, is very consistent with the fact that there's a, a huge population or a huge segment of population that's getting poor and we want to get 
at them. We want to we want to be able to sell them some products, even even though that's the case without, and that's important, without lowering the price on the people who still have money. So I think that's a, a really great point because. Um, you know, given that the furniture company has been around for so long, it's like you said, we would have, if this was something that was profitable for them to do in the past, uh, we would have expected them to do it. And yet it's only now that they're making this move. And, you know, the story that you're telling is consistent, right? It says, you know, look, something structural has happened in the economy that has pushed people to two extremes. And that changes, you know, the demand, the market that IKEA is facing. And this is one way that they might be, you know, very cleverly trying to take advantage uh, of this situation. And so, you know, I, I kind of feel the same way you do, which is to, you know, some extent, you know, you have to respect the game of IKEA to, you know, respond to these changing market conditions with a very, you know, sophisticated and clever pricing strategy. But we also have to be concerned about, you know, what is the social impact of this and to what extent is IKEA just, you know, like taking advantage of inequalities that have been created as a result of this pandemic. Um, you know, those social types of considerations aren't necessarily in place when we have a private firm like IKEA. But, you know, as economists, you know, as, you know, social commentators, you know, it is, you know, something that we can consider. Absolutely. And I, I think uh, the word or the expression price discrimination has a, a has a negative connotation, but it, it, it we know, right? We know from economic models, and, and this is probably the case here, that price discrimination doesn't mean that consumers are going to end up being hurt by this, because now you have people who have access to IKEA furniture at a lower price. The people who are, you know, who, who are already well off, you know, they still buy the IKEA furniture. Not all of them, maybe, but you know, but it's it's not like they're going to be affected. Besides, if they're the rich ones being affected, it's not not as much of a big deal. So um, again, I'm not I'm not saying that uh, IKEA's practice is not uh, is not some I'm not sorry I'm not claiming that IKEA's practice is hurting consumers. Uh, what really kind of gets at me is this idea that this this message where they say, "Oh well, now we're really worried about about the environment or whatever," and and we're going to do this to to address that when it's something they could have done a long time ago, for example. Yeah, absolutely. So I, I agree with you there. Uh, the, the other thing that I was going to say is um, it, this reminded me a little bit of the situation that Ticketmaster was in for many years, uh, where Ticketmaster. So, so Ticketmaster, you know, they were, you know, the you know first point of sale for lots of concert tickets. And then once the concert ticket was were gone, there is was a very robust secondary market, you know, so there's all these websites that you can go on. Uh, you know, SeatGeek, or I probably don't want to start promoting these sites necessarily. You're talking about like, the you scalpers, don't pay, you don't right? Get promoted. The ticket scalpers <laughs> that basically buy lots of tickets early, and then you know, once they've run out, they try to resell them at a higher price. Is that what you're talking about? Absolutely. Yeah. They like to be called brokers now. Okay. Wow. But uh, <laughs> yeah, so the scalpers, right? So um, the only instead of standing on the street waving tickets, they're sitting in an office with a website. But yeah, same idea, right? This the secondary market. I don't find it, you know, like as, uh, you know, pejorative as some other people might, um, you know, it has a function. Um, it, it does help with allocation to a certain extent. But really, the, the issue here was that um, Ticketmaster was, you know, selling these tickets out, you know, to anyone. And then other people were reselling them and making lots of profit off of these resales. Mm -hmm. And so what Ticketmaster eventually did is they started their own ticket brokerage as well. And so now when you go on Ticketmaster, what you see when you see a concert is if there's no, you know, um, like, uh, you know, seats available on the primary market, they have their own secondary market. 
right? So they just said, like, look, all these people are making all this money off of us. Why not make the money ourselves? And so they created this ability to operate in the secondary market. And so I guess the one missing piece of the story for IKEA before we are, you know, completely, you know, before we, you know, accuse them too much of, of greenwashing is, you know, it is possible, right, that there is a robust um, you know, used furniture sure. market, you know, coming up. And this could be for the reason that you suggested. And what Ikea is doing is just stepping into a place where other people were going to step into anyway. Um, so, you know, again, like at the end of the day, right, you know, Ikea is a private company. They're going to, you know, do the best for their shareholders. And, uh, you know, this is an interesting strategy uh, along those lines. There's, you know, lots of economic content, uh, but, you know, maybe it's not accomplishing the environmental goals that IKEA is claiming, but I think we talked about this in previous episodes. I don't know that any firms are really pursuing environmental goals for their own sake. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, we tend to think that it's all instrumental to you know promote their image or, or whatever. But one thing that I that I do think they're again, I'm not saying IKEA is evil, but I think uh, the fact that they're such a large uh, company and they have access to lots of suppliers, and in particular, I would. I would trust them to when they're not reselling the products, but they're recycling the wood. I would trust them to actually have a, a very well established channel to go uh, to send the wood to the the woods or whatever materials to the to the proper places, as opposed to <laughs> as opposed to just you know individuals uh, you know throwing the, this in the in the garbage. So I think there's some purpose there. I think it's nice that uh, when anyway, it's encouraging that they all also handle the post-consumption uh, part of the cycle. And I think this is something that can be useful for sure. It's just that I'm always cautious when, you know, when, when we open a, a, new, a new product and we say that the only reason or the main reason we're doing it is for, is for, is for the, world, so the world's sake. But yeah, no, I, think, I think there's some good in that. I think some consumers will be happier. I think they have a better handle on how to how to deal with the post-consumption, the, the post-consumer aspects of aspect of things, so the recycling, and uh, and overall, I'm not I'm not saying that's a bad thing at all. Well, and certainly I won't miss the Billy bookcases melting in the alleys. Yeah, um, exactly. That we're all used to. So, uh, if I can at least help with that part of things, I'd be pretty happy mm -hmm. about it. Yeah. So and then, what's our vote? Do we we vote yes for this IKEA thing, or we started off pretty mean, but I guess overall, you know, IKEA, you're you're doing the right thing. Maybe not for the right reasons, but you're doing the right thing. I don't know. I'm jo yeah. I'm joking, man. You don't have to <laughs> keep it in the podcast. I'm just saying stuff out there. So, but Lenny, you're making. A I face. don't know. I mean, my <laughs> <laughs> no. It's just my attitude is like, look, like. Uh, you know, and I know it's a weird attitude, but like I have like the same bookcase for, that I bought from Ikea like 15 years mm -hmm. ago yeah. and it still holds books. Yeah. And so as far as I'm concerned, oh, so that's, that's why you like it. Zoom. I understand now. If a bookcase holds books, <laughs> I'm happy. And if Zoom allows me to speak with people, I'm happy. That's, you, you just want the, the core feature to work and then everything else is just frills. No. Well, so you, you, you joke about this, but there's so many things where like the core feature doesn't work. Sure. Right. And so like, which is absurd that that would be the case. Mm -hmm. Right. But like, so, you know, I like it, like it's a bookcase, it holds books, like that's <laughs> fine. Like, so, you know, it doesn't look very good. And every time you move it, like it loses chunks <laughs> and you lose those tiny pieces. And now you only have four shelves instead of five. Like I understand the compulsion to have nicer furniture, 
you know, but like, I think our world would be better off if we had less nice furniture and we just kept our furniture until it like ceased to function. Yeah, I, I hear you. I'm just messing with you. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, fair enough. I also like don't have great taste, I don't think. So, you know, trying to buy nice furniture would be lost on me. So today's subject is about risk. Well, yeah, anytime there's risk, there's how you perceive risk and how you try to avoid it, because most of us do. We, we, most of us try to avoid risk. We're what we call being, well, uh, most of us try to avoid risk. We're what we call risk-averse people, which has a lot of consequences. In fact, what I want to talk about today is pretty simple. Anybody has already been confronted with insurance. You know, if you want a car, you need an insurance. If you want a house, you need an insurance. But for example, like, uh, uh, like Lani, like you, you told me earlier, like uh, with your, your computer, which is broke every, every time, yeah. like, do you buy insurance for your computer? Yeah, I did. So I, I okay. bought uh, the extended warranty uh, for my computer. Um, and it was supposed to protect me in the case that my computer uh, would break. They would, uh, you know, replace it or replace the parts, and and that's partially worked. My computer has broken. So that you know. that part of the plan happened. Well, so it broke a lot, uh, and and to some extent I was covered, but it wasn't, you know, to my satisfaction. But I think that that's more of an information problem than, than an insurance problem per se. You know, I think, you know, when you ask the question, you know, how do these insurance markets work? I think the, the main thing is to sort of identify that uh, it's very important that on one side of the market, you know, there's one insurance company and on the other side of the market, there is many people who want to be insured. And so I think the really interesting thing about the insurance market is this relationship between the many people who want insurance and the one person who's providing it and trying to make sense out of, you know, how is it possible that, you know, one firm uh, puts you know itself on the line to be responsible to cover the losses of all of these people. Because that's the thing. I mean, the whole principle, the whole idea of the insurance market is to say that you have these people who are saying, I'm willing to give you money so that I don't have to bear the risk. And on the other side, you have this insurance company that says, yeah, give me that amount of money and I will bear the risk. So there is an entity, and here it's a company, You know, it doesn't have to be one person, but it's a company, there's an entity there that is willing to accept risk. So how does that jive with the fact that most people actually don't like risk and try to avoid it. Well, so, for example, I mean, let's say that uh, I wanted to uh, insure my bicycle. And uh, I came up to you, uh, Justin, and said, uh, you know, hey, I I'd like you to insure my bicycle for me. I'm going to give you uh, $5 every month uh, indefinitely. And if my bicycle gets stolen, you're going to replace my bicycle for me uh, for, you know, $2,000. Is this the sort of thing that you might be willing to accept from me? I will not well, be why willing not? to. Well, because I, I mean, if it were against maybe breakage, that would be one thing. But it being stolen, I don't know. Will you be really careful about about securing your bike? I mean, that's something we can talk about in the moral hazard episode and, and later on. But I would be too um, probably be too risk averse to take on that bet. So, so what do you mean by that? Like, what's the problem that you're facing here? Problem is that I don't know how much it might cost, but let's say just give me a number. So two thousand dollars. No way, man. I mean, there's no way I will, I will insure your bike, your two thousand dollar bike, meaning that I would be liable to give you two thousand dollars in case something happens to your bike in exchange of five dollars, in exchange for five dollars per month. To me, it's not worth it because because you're the only person that I would be insuring so far. I'm not an insurance company, right? But uh, I guess in this situation, what is happening is that uh, the law of large numbers doesn't apply. 
Uh, and so like, because there's only one bike, uh, if it gets stolen, you have to reimburse everything uh, with your own money. But if there were a million of Lani, uh, well, even though there would be like some bikes uh, which could get stolen. With not... 400 Lani's, that'd be okay because I would be getting 400 times five, that's $2,000 per month. Yeah. And you know, if I think that roughly one bike is going to get stolen per month, you know, I still, I'm still doing okay. You would break even under that. Exactly. So it makes a big difference how many people I am insuring at the same time. Right. And of course, the key here is that in this market for bicycle insurance that we've made up, you know, not everyone has their bike stolen at the same time. So sometimes you have the insurance company has to pay out uh, for a lost or stolen bicycle, and sometimes they don't. And meanwhile, they're collecting all of these premiums all the time. And this is how, you know, medical insurance works, uh, insurance, uh, home insurance, you know, car insurance, all these types of markets uh, exist by having, you know, one person on one side of the market who, you know, absorbs all the risk of many people and takes advantage of the fact that they're always getting paid, but they're only sometimes making payments. And also there the are some situations like uh, natural disasters where all the cars and all the houses get destroyed at the same time. So that's right. And that's uh, when you have an insurance company that insures local people, say local people for their flood example, uh, flood insurance, for example. And if, as you have now, we have more and more natural uh, disasters, then these insurance companies end up having to pay out of pocket a whole lot at the same time. And so now there's been a, a rise in what's called reinsurance companies, where you have these worldwide, I guess, huge insurance companies that will insure the insurance companies themselves. And they're the ones who are able to diversify. And I think that's the key thing, to diversify your, your, your portfolio, where you're not just going to insure somebody, or just one region, you're going to insure a whole bunch of them with the uh, hope that not everybody will be affected in the same way or at the same time, which, you know, it's debatable now. We have, we have these uh, this this COVID pandemic, you know, in 2020 that took most of the year and, you know, the Wimbledon Open was able to get insurance against the pandemic. It's a pandemic. That was pretty convenient. But I mean, it's not clear that any insurance company in the future will want to, to insure anyone against pandemics. Well, exactly. The same logic explains why, you know, you can't uh, get insurance against war. War happens to everyone. And so from an insurance company's perspective, this would be very difficult because they would have to pay back everyone uh, at the same time. Okay, you mean it happens to everyone in a given country, for example? Yeah, exactly. Okay. So, you know, it, you couldn't have a Canadian insurance company insuring Canadians against war, any insurance company for that matter, uh, because everyone in Canada would be affected at the same time. They would have to pay out everyone at the same time. Mm -hmm. This would no longer be worth it. Mm -hmm. So they really do take advantage of the fact that people face different risks. You know, when it's car insurance, right, people are safer, less safe drivers, uh, when it's medical insurance, people are healthier or less healthy. And so, uh, you know, of course, you brought this up earlier, but we can talk about, you know, some of the other interesting issues associated with how this affects people's behavior. Mm -hmm. Fundamentally, you know, people are trying to avoid risks and the insurance company by its size and ability to diversify those risks across lots of people is able to provide this when those risks are idiosyncratic. That's right. And, and, and you say the word take advantage. I just want to make it clear to our listeners. It's not taking advantage in the sense of abusing people. You know, it's really it's just making profitable use of the fact that because these companies diversify their, their risk, what they're willing to accept in, in terms of insurance premium. So it's maybe, you know, they're willing to accept $5 for the bicycle. And maybe actually maybe they're willing to accept $4 for the bicycle because the probability of the bike being stolen is, is actually pretty low. But us as individuals, the people who do buy insurance are willing to pay up to $5. So there's between 4 and $5 is this mutually beneficial there's this range of prices for a mutually beneficial trade. 
Right, that's true. Everyone is made better off as a result of this uh, transaction. Um, as you're saying that, it actually reminded me of another uh, related idea, which is that one could argue that the existence of the stock market uh, is due to an argument along, the similar, along similar lines. Uh, that is to say that you know, the way that you know, the stock market works is it, it's a way to exchange you know, small pieces of a company. Mm -hmm. And so what it allows is it allows ownership to be spread amongst many investors instead of just one or you know, just a few. And the argument for this is really similar. You know, so, for example, if you were trying to open a restaurant and you were trying to attract investors, if you went to one person, you know, your uncle, and said, hey, uh, uncle, can you lend me $500,000 to open this restaurant? He might be really hesitant because if you fail, which many restaurants do, he's going to lose his entire investment. But if you go to 10 family members and ask them each for $50,000, it's true they'll have a smaller share of the profits, but they're also going to bear a smaller loss individually in the event that the, the business you know, doesn't work out. And so the stock market as well is a way of distributing risk across people. And without this ability to distribute risk, it would be much more difficult for firms to raise capital for investment. That's a great point. And also it has this, uh, well, actually it has this uh, flip side where because the risk is spread, the firm itself has an incentive to take on more risk because it can. Right. Because it's, it's, its own risk is being spread between, uh, between a, a large number of investors. So we can talk about this in the in moral hazard context as well. <laughs> exactly. So that's, exactly. Every time, so that, that, that's, that's the thing. Uh, we're going to, when we talk about the, uh, the moral hazard aspect, it's always interlinked with, uh, with the issue of risk because uh, as we will see, it's, uh, it's a key element of that. Absolutely. So um, at this point, then let me ask you. So let's say that I uh, you know, wanted to insure my bicycle um, and, you know, let's just, you know, fix some ideas, you know, uh, Justin, you are an insurance company, you have many customers who are insuring their bicycles and paying you a certain amount per month. And let's just say that, you know, in any given uh, month, you know, there's a 1% chance that a, a one individual's bicycle is going to get stolen. So, you know, it's a fairly low risk. So here's me with my, you know, $2,000 bicycle and a 1% chance that it's going to get stolen, trying to decide how much I'd be willing to pay. Uh, for this insurance. And so what we might be interesting to think about is, well, how am I going to decide? Uh, so the, maybe you know, an easy place to start is to think, well, you know, I have a 1% chance of my bicycle being stolen. My bicycle is worth $2,000. So you know, sometimes we call this in, you know, an expected loss of $20. Mm -hmm. So maybe I should be willing to pay $20 a month in order to insure my bicycle. Um, in this case, you know, over a very long period of time, you know, the argument is, is that I would break even on this deal. Uh, but as we know, people don't like risk. And so it's not that just as simple as um, avoiding uh, or being uh, made whole from the risk itself. It's also about trying to really avoid this risk. And that means that people might even be willing to pay more. And so if I was thinking about myself with a $2,000 bicycle and a 1% chance that it's going to get stolen... You know, I might be willing to pay more than $20 a month, maybe 25 maybe 30 Well, you better, because as an insurance company, I will not accept anything less than $20, because that's how much I would expect to pay out if it's really 1%. So then what accounts for this difference between, you know, this expected loss for the, the company or expected loss for me and the amount that I'd be willing to pay, which is probably, you know, greater than $20? Well, I guess we, we all have different attitudes uh, towards risk. Like, uh, I can be, like, more risk-seeker than you are, so uh, I will pay way less than you. Yeah, risk-seeker is the opposite of, of risk-averse. So we're, even though we might all be facing the same risk, 
that doesn't mean we're all willing to pay the same amount for insurance. And this is where we get back to, to our own beliefs, our own psychology, and how, how we react to risk. You know, not everybody is willing to jump off a plane uh, with a parachute. And, so. and I guess the, there's sociodemographic uh, variables that influence that. For instance, uh, if you have a lot of money, you can spend uh, as much as you want to protect your assets. Okay, so that maybe uh, that has to do with the, the different risks, right? But there's also sentimental value could happen also. Mm-hmm. But, but I think inherently, it's not just the probability itself. It's also the fact that some people might be just bummed by the fact that they have to go to the insurance company if it breaks down. And this is kind of emotionally or it's really costly for them, not necessarily financially, but say, look, if this thing breaks down, Even though I'm being insured and I'm going to be compensated, I, I would just prefer for it not to break down. You know, for example, if you took um, people who were identical in every regard, demographic, uh, you know, income, etc., yeah. uh, and the only thing you allowed them to uh, differ on was their psychological tolerance for being exposed to risk, mm-hmm. this would create uh, differences in willingness to pay for insurance. This alone. Sure. Right? And so we all know people who are, you know extremely averse to risk and avoid risks, not just financial risks, but risks in all aspects of their lives, these people would likely be willing to pay more to insure their bicycle than other people. Uh, I mean, we were talking, for example, before about my uh, extended warranty for my computer. Part of the reason that I was willing to pay more is that, for me, the inconvenience of having to, you know, deal with a broken computer is so great because, you know, I'm constantly working, that I purchased extra insurance that would make sure that, you know, if my computer broke, it would get repaired immediately. And other people who don't face the same kind of circumstances or don't have the same psychological tolerance for risk might not be willing to purchase the extended warranty. So some of these are the subjective sort of things that we were talking about when we discussed value mm-hmm. uh, in a previous podcast, where, you know, people just have this sort of subjective uh, psychological feeling towards risk. And that affects how much they're willing to pay for insurance or how much they're willing to take risk in potentially other parts of their lives. Also, I, I don't know if it fits with the subject, but there may be uh, another variable, uh, which is a laziness. For example, each year uh, I move to another apartment and each year I always take one or two or three months uh, to make the effort to call my insurance company to make the change. And so only the cost of calling my insurance company makes me not paying for the well, to protect me uh, for like one, two or three months. And so, uh, and so during all that time, I'm exposed to the risk. Oh, wow. But so that is an interesting example because here what you're doing is you're, you're trading off um, the security of being insured versus the possibility of paying a little bit less for insurance. And, you know, this is the calculation that everyone is doing. You know, e- even if you're me and you really don't want to lose your bicycle and you might be willing to pay a lot to insure it, there's, there's a limit to what I'd be willing to pay to insure my bicycle per month. So I might be willing to accept $30 a month or $35 a month. I'm not going to pay $1,000 a month to insure my $2,000 bicycle. So even though I don't like risk and I'd rather not be exposed to risk, you know, we're still making a trade-off between, you know, the amount of money that we have or the cost mm-hmm. and how much risk we're being exposed to. When we right. make these sort of, you know, cost-benefit risk assessments, you know, every single day, right? You know, when, every time we get into a car, you know, every time I get on my bicycle in Montreal, it feels like I'm taking a significant risk. You know, I'm making this cost-benefit analysis. You know, is it worth taking on, you know, this risk of, you know, riding through, you know, like off-roading on the bike paths in Montreal to get to work? Or should I work from home today and be a little bit safer? And, you know, even though I'm averse to getting injured on my bicycle, you know, I still get on it every single day. I think Greg, Greg was also adding the fact that 
just the annoyance of having to do the transaction, you know, call the company and, and just do that. A transaction cost, in a way, you could call it. It's, it's, it's enough for him to delay just setting up the, the insurance. So it's not just, I don't think the monetary amount was really the, the key no. driver here. It was really also about, about, oh, I just have to call this out. I have better things to do today. I'll do it tomorrow. And then you just put it off for another three months and just hope that the fire happens only after you, you make that call. But, you know, if Greg was more sensitive uh, to risk, you know, he wouldn't be willing exactly. to wait. Absolutely. Right? Absolutely. Another thing that can change uh, our behavior toward risk is, uh, and I think, Lani, you will complete me on that, is that sometimes there's something we can call a nudge, which is the, the fact of changing the way uh, people perceive the, the different choices to, to influence them to have a specific choice. And like, for example, in some, in some country, uh, to increase uh, organ donations, instead of letting you choose, you're automatically a donor. And, and so with the, with the existence of the nudge, uh, I guess uh, people's perception of the risk uh, changes as well. So I don't know, Lenny, is that... You've, you've done some work on that, so can you tell us more? Yeah, so th this actually, uh, one of the other famous applications, uh, perhaps, you know, even the most famous application of nudges uh, has to do with enrollment in um, retirement savings programs in the United States. And, you know, so the idea here would be that uh, you would enter a new job and instead of being asked, would you like to enroll in this retirement savings program, um, you would be automatically enrolled in the program. And then if you didn't want to be enrolled, you would have to phone someone and say like, hey, you know, I'd, I'd like to withdraw uh, from this program. And, you know, what they found is that by providing someone with uh, the default option of being enrolled, uh, more people ultimately were enrolled in the retirement program. And so the, the argument here was, is that, you know, people were not adequately saving for retirement. And this was a way to, to nudge them towards you know, a, a welfare-improving choice, you know, and, and because we're talking about retirement and we're talking about, you know, saving money using risky assets um, that, you know, pay off in the future, we are talking about a story in, involving risk. And so it is, you know, massaging their choices uh, in the domain of decision-making under risk or uncertainty. Uh, that is, you know, um, you know, getting people to save more money than they maybe otherwise would have if it was left up to them. And it's not necessarily, you know, changing their preferences, right? But it might be, uh, you know, nudging them into the that they might uh, like better, but we're not otherwise, you know, aware so, of or didn't want to put in the effort uh, to enroll in. So you're saying it's not necessarily that we're changing the risk attitude, but we're making it either more costly for them to change or because now that automatically you are enrolled, then it kind of creates some social norm that, you know, okay, everybody's enrolled. So, you know, it's, it's, it's easier for me to accept this this retirement savings plan, it's not necessarily because I'm more or less risk averse than I used to be. Right. So I don't think the idea is that it changes your preferences. I think the idea is that, um, you know, this is a difficult decision to make. Um, and, you know, when people have, you know, complicated decisions to make, sometimes there's some, you know, inertia, you know, so, uh, you know, actually I have this problem with insurance. Uh, when I'm trying to think about which company I want to use for my home insurance, I know I have to go through this costly uh, procedure of searching through a bunch of different insurance companies and, you know, that's going to take a bunch of time. And so at the end of the day, I just, you know, don't do it. And then all of a sudden I'm in, you know, Greg's <laughs> position of not being insured for three months, which is something that I'm generally uncomfortable with. Mm -hmm. uh, if instead, right, I was automatically enrolled in one insurance, uh, you know, company, I would have the insurance and then it would be up to me whether I wanted to extend that extra effort. And so I think the the analogy in terms of you know, retirement savings is, you know, people 
don't really understand well this problem because it involves both risk and time. It's a very mm -hmm. complex problem. Yep. Trying to, you know, determine the difference between, you know, different mutual funds or different rates of savings is a very complex problem for people to solve. And so I think the idea here is that it's reducing the complexity of the environment by giving people this default option, which supposedly is, is better for everyone, or at least better for more uh, than worse. So is there a way to actually, or do we, are, so this, this practice, that, this nudge practice, or at least the one that you just described, Greg, is one where, you know, we're, we're making it, uh, we're, we're framing the situation for the, the people to behave in a certain way, and that this influences their, their choice. Do we know, or Lanny, maybe because this is close to your area of research, do we know of procedures or policies that actually influence the risk attitudes of people? That change the risk attitudes. So this is tough um, because the, you can't observe someone's risk attitude uh, directly. So what... Just do a whole ignoring. I mean, this is, we're getting into really advanced stuff here, but isn't, isn't that the whole point of these uh, experiments when you have these... Uh, Well, so, so that's an interesting point. Yeah. So, you know, in, in economics, we have different ways of measuring people's risk attitude. So, um, you, know, uh, you know, one of the most famous ones that you brought up was this, you know, sort of Holt and Lowry, uh, you know, mechanism. It's maybe a bit more complex than something we'd want to talk about here. But, you know, there's a simple, you know, elicitation mechanism or, or way of measuring people's risk attitude. And that is, you know, imagine that I offered to you the opportunity to flip a coin. Uh, heads, it's $100. You get $100. Tails, you get $0. How much would you be willing to pay me in order to flip this coin? Mm -hmm. And so your response to this is going to give me some sense of how much you like risk. So let's say your response was, well, I mean, you can tell me. How much so sorry, if I'm, basically, if I like risk, I'm willing to pay more than 100. Or more, sorry, more than 50. I say 100 because with my students, I do it with 200 bucks. Okay. So. <laughs> So, so let's say that um, let's say I'm risk neutral, meaning I just care about the uh, expected. I would be pay, willing to pay 50 bucks for this gamble, right? Right. But because I'm risk averse, I'm not going to be willing to pay that much, and probably maybe let's say 30 dollars. Right. So, so let's say that your answer was Don't 30 dollars, right? So, so I would make a conclusion from that uh, uh, based on your your choice about your attitude towards risk. So I would say, you know, you're risk averse. You don't like risk, and this is how risk-averse you are. This is how much you don't like it. Um, so the question then is, is, is how fundamental is this? Uh, how much does this truly represent your attitude towards risk, or is it sensitive to the way in which I pose the question? So, for example, if I picked an entirely different way of trying to assess your risk. Uh, so, for example, there's a very famous risk assessment tool called the Bomb Risk Game. And what it is, is it, uh, it's a matrix of 100 squares, and you get to pick how many of these squares you'd like to open, how many boxes you'd like to open out of the 100. And under one of the 100 boxes, there's a bomb. And if you happen to open the box with a bomb, you lose. But if you don't open the box with a bomb, uh, then you win, you get money. And so then the question is, well, how many boxes do you want to open? And so, like, let's say that your answer to me in this case was, I would be willing to open 40 boxes. Out of 100. Out of 100. Okay. Well, this would be inconsistent with your previous answer because these problems are actually mathematically identical. The risks you're facing are identical. You should be willing to, given your answer to the previous question, just open 30 of the boxes, mm -hmm. right? Whereas uh, in this situation, you, your answer was 40. So what changed? Was it, you know, in the two minutes that we talked about this, your attitude towards risk changed? Or is the fact that I used two different ways to measure it 
um, coming up with a different answer. And so maybe because I'm, it was not as easy for me to calculate the risk in the, so, in so the this two is situations, right? I did, my perception of the risk was different. So, not so, necessarily because my preference was different, but my perception. Exactly. And yeah. so, so this is actually the cutting edge of research into decision-making under risk these days, which is how reliable are these ways of measuring risk? And so there's a very... Risk uh, attitude, you mean? Risk attitude, yeah, yeah sorry. The, there's a very uh, high, uh, high-brow debate going on within behavioral economics about, you know, what is uh, risk attitude, really? You know, is it a, is a fundamental feature of each person? Is there some deep parameter in our brains that's determining our attitude towards risk? Or is it entirely context-specific? Well, I, okay, I buy, I buy insurance because I don't like to face risk sometimes. I don't buy it for everything, but sometimes I, I buy a lottery ticket. So what does that say about me? Because a lottery ticket is a losing gamble. I mean, you know, I pay $3 to get the 649, pas d'extra. And, uh, and then my odds or my expected gain is less than three bucks most of the time. So does that mean I'm risk-loving then? So technically, yes. Uh, but I buy insurance. Right. right. So, so I think that this is an interesting example of, you know, where you can find some tension between, you know, uh, the sort of, uh, well, at least some tension with respect to the idea that people are all one thing or all another. So totally risk averse or, or totally not risk averse. And so, you know, actually, this is a very old puzzle, right? How people can be willing, the same people willing to pay lottery, buy lottery tickets and buy insurance. And there's lots of different explanations. Some of these explanations come up with a way of making sense of all of it through one, you know, particular mechanism, which essentially says that people are very, people will take small risks, mm -hmm. but they're uh, averse to uh, large risks. And so in the case of insurance, we imagine that's a relatively large risk. That's you true. know, it's your house, your car, whatever. Lottery ticket, you're, it's $2. Well, right? that's, that's how I feel when I do that. Exactly. Mm -hmm. Exactly. So, so that's not, you know... Um, that's not incomplete, uh, except that, you know, in this case, right, it would really depend on the stakes, whether or not we would consider you risk-averse or risk-loving. So we couldn't classify you just as, as one or the other. It depends. And, you know, in this case, it depends a little bit on the stakes, a little bit on the, the context. Uh, but, it, you know, it can, it can depend on lots of things, right? So as we were talking about these nudges, it can depend on the way in which questions are being framed. And so, you know, there's lots of famous studies that, you know, look at, you know, trying to frame things as gains versus losses, for example. And, you know, what they find is that you can give people exactly the same uh, lotteries uh, that end up with exactly the same final payoffs. And when you ask people for their choices, the risk attitudes that are, you're going to back out of them are going to be very inconsistent. So with our coin flipping example, to make sense of this one, right, you could say, I'm going to give you $200 and a coin. Mm -hmm. And now, if you flip heads, I'm going to take $100 away from you. And if you flip tails, I'm going to take $200 away from you. Yeah, same thing. Right? So it's exactly the same as the other coin flip example. But if I was going to try to back your risk attitude about this, like how much you would be willing to pay for this opportunity, very likely your answer would change. And yet it's exactly the same problem. So we created a situation where the framing has, you know, affected our measurement of your risk attitude. Mm -hmm. And we still go back to this fundamental question is, was there really a fundamental risk attitude to be measured? Yeah. Or did the framing actually change that? Um, and so, so these are questions that we don't have good answers to. And, and you know, the really highbrow economic theorists uh, spend a lot of time trying to think about. But also, I think that uh, with your lottery attitude, 
Uh, maybe it's not only about the risk, but it's when you pay three dollars for uh, a 649. Uh, extra. Pas extra. <laughs> Pas extra. Okay. It's the fact that uh, you pay a service. Like, uh, for example, like for some hours, you can dream about what you would do if you have these 10 millions uh, in your bank account. Uh, and so it's not really about your risk perception, but it's mostly the, the cost of dreaming. Okay, well, you're right. And, and, and you, you're absolutely right. And you, there's this, uh, this sense that you know, I'm having you know, what's called the, the, a, it's basically a poor person's activity is to say, what would happen if I, if I earn you know, $10 million all of a sudden, what would I buy? Because I mean, rich people don't do that. They don't say, well, if I go bankrupt, which, which bus line should I take? And you know, it just doesn't work the other way around. <laughs> it's just uh, really one way. But, but you're right. It's really for, for a time, you know, I am potentially a millionaire. And it works in reverse with the insurance, right? Because you would, and this is every insurance company will sell it to you this way, is that you're buying peace of mind. So you're buying this, this emotional state that, you, that you're going for. Yeah. Well, and people have argued, right, that the economy is becoming more and more sort of fear-based, right? People are using fear as a marketing tool mm-hmm. in order to get people to, to buy things that are, are perceived as to be you know, types of insurance. And so it's not just for insurance itself, right? It's for things that are supposed to make you, you know, more secure, more safe, whatever. And it, it's, you know, really, um, you know, uh, so I can't come up with something that's not uh, too pejorative, but, you know, it's, it's, you know, it's preying a little bit on people's fears mm-hmm. uh, sometimes to do this. It's not as clear cut as with, you know, insurance where the benefit yeah. uh, is exactly the same. Um, but, but actually sort of going back a little bit to the context thing, I, it reminded me that, um, you know, as somebody who has spent, you know, the last you know, 10, 15 years studying decision-making under risk, uh, I don't gamble. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, I mean, if I do go to a casino, if I end up there with my friends because they want to go, you know, I'll, you know, play like electronic blackjack or something until I win or lose $20 mm-hmm. and then I leave, you know, I don't, not really interested in it. I think it's a terrible idea. I don't <laughs> buy lottery tickets for the same reason. Uh, I won't. I love sports. I won't bet on sports um, except with my friends. You mean amongst friends? Yeah, okay. uh, yeah, among my friends. Okay. I, I will bet with one of my friends mm-hmm. on sports. But but the reason isn't because I'm thinking about the gamble. It's really just that if I was to win, I get to do all the trash talking, mm-hmm. right, to my friends. The bragging rights, yeah. Right, and so so that is worth so much to me, right, that I'd be willing to you know take on a, a relatively. Uh, you know, bad gamble, which, you know, to me, many of these are already bad, but, you know, so uh, because I have this thing, this benefit, uh, you know, of, you know, bragging over my friends, which is not unlike the idea that if I win the lottery, Mm -hmm. I become super rich. I don't know which I would prefer to be able to, you know, give it to my friends every day or be rich. Um, (laughs) Both seem pretty good. But the point is, is that these things can induce people who would otherwise not be willing to take risks uh, to take risks. And so I don't think it's it's crazy for someone to want to play the lottery. Uh, I don't think it's, you know, crazy for someone to, you know, want to bet uh, with their friends. Mm-hmm. I, I might argue that it's a little bit crazy to, you know, set up every night at the blackjack table. Yeah. Um, but, you know, some people think this is a good idea too. Just some people don't believe that probabilities are actually accurate. You know, they think, okay, this, this, you know, I'm due, I'm due to win, right? Or if uh-huh. I, if I play these numbers... Every day, then, then I know they're going, they're bound to come out, and my my odds of winning are increasing every time I play the same numbers. Right, absolutely. So my my father, uh, my sorry, my stepfather, uh, asked me one day at dinner, you know, recognizing uh, after many years I've been studying economics that I wasn't a uh, stockbroker; I was in fact <laughs> uh, an economist. 
He asked me, you know, is it true that I have the same probability of winning the lottery using the numbers that I've played for 25 years, the same numbers every week for 25 years versus if I just pick them randomly every week? And I looked at him, I was like, yeah, of course. And he, this was heartbreaking to him because he had very carefully picked these six numbers that he was going to play for the rest of his life. And they mean something to him. And he thought, right, that like this was going to help him somehow to play the same numbers every week. And it just, in fact, wasn't true. Uh, then again, I guess, you know, I would have looked at it the other way, which was it should have been a relief to him that he wasn't doing anything stupid mm -hmm. by playing the same numbers every week. It's just as good as picking them randomly. And if he keeps playing them and if he ends up winning, he'll say, you know, I told you, Lanny. Absolutely. Uh, you know, my odds were higher. Absolutely. So I think we all suffer from this problem where we, you know, attribute uh, too much of our success to things that we've ourselves done. And I think there's a lot of evidence of this in the business world where, you know, uh, people give, you know, CEOs, for example, too much credit for the success of companies and also too much blame uh, when companies don't do well. There's this great book by Robert Frank on this. Right, yeah. Hmm. It's also because uh, there is usually common beliefs that are irrational. And so uh, people's uh, perception of the risk are irrational as well. For example, uh, if there were a dog and a shark in this room, I guess we will all be uh, more afraid of the, of the shark than, uh, than of the dog. Well, if there's a shark in the room and there's no water, I don't think I'd be too afraid <laughs> of a shark. <laughs> But Not in this room, maybe. Depends on how big the shark is, man. I guess so. You're right. <laughs> well, it depends also on the, on the size of the duck. But, uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. but, but I guess this brings us to statistics, right? Exactly. But I, I guess we should be more afraid of the duck if we were like rational, like with statistics. Because like every year, um, like in average, there's like a, a hundred per person killed by, uh, by shark. But there's like uh, 25,000 of people killed by dogs. In the world, you mean? In the world, yeah. 25,000 killed by dogs and mm -hmm. 100 by sharks. Okay, per year. So what I'd really be interested in is if you go to the beach, are you more likely to yeah. get eaten by a shark? Like given or, that you swim in the, in, in the sea. Yeah, yeah. Right? given that you're going swimming, are you more likely to die uh, in the water by shark attack or on the beach by dog attack? I guess dog attacks. <laughs> on the beach. On the beach. <laughs> All right, we need that data. We need, we need that data. But then again, you'll see that um, the number one fear that people have is snakes. Mm. And I don't think that's very high. Well, kill count is it it's more than uh than dogs like top three it's like a five no it's like oh, it's 50, in the top thousand. three yeah ah, okay but well, but, but the second the second rational. most feared thing by people in the world is speaking in public and i don't think that has killed a lot of people i imagine not maybe a few but not a that few, many maybe, yeah. <laughs> so this is actually it's interesting you bring this up because i have a friend who got a job in australia And, you know, from our previous conversation a few minutes ago, I, I do like to give my friends a hard time from time to time. And so what I was hoping I would be able to do is find a bunch of statistics about how mm -hmm. likely it was that he was going to die at the hands of a poisonous insect. Mm -hmm. But it turns out that in spite of the fact that there are lots and lots of poisonous insects in Australia, uh, deaths from uh, insect bites are really, really rare. Like so rare that it's not fun at all to bother your friend about it. Really? Yeah. So that was a bit unfortunate. He just loses a leg, and that's it? Just no, but I, I mean, actually, these attacks are fairly rare. So, oh. so even, you know, Australia has all these, you know, like big giant spiders, crocodiles, yeah. you know, great white sharks. Uh, yeah, those are not poisonous spiders, insects, by the way. Uh, but they are deadly. Okay, all right. Uh, so they have all these really deadly animals, but people don't die frequently in Australia by deadly animal. Uh, it's just, you know, these things become more salient for us, right? So, you know, one of the really famous examples, you know, talking about sharks, is that The movie Jaws mm -hmm. actually made, like, had a significant impact on society in terms of people's fear of sharks. 
you know, people all of a sudden were afraid of sharks, you know, in places where, you know, there just weren't any shark risk. Uh, and even these days, if, if a great white shark, actually, in fact, I read a story the other day about a great white shark uh, in uh, Nova Scotia. And someone spotted a great white shark in the okay. waters off Nova Scotia, and it, was, it made the news because, you know, shark attacks and great white sharks are, are so salient for people, especially post-Jaws, uh, post even though it's very unlikely, as, you know, Greg said, that you're going to die by shark. There's a call, there's a call, there's a call for you. There's a call on the phone for you. So this week, we received a voice message from Eugenie, one of our listeners. Let's listen to it. Hello, it's Eugenie. Um, I have a question for this week. So as many students in the world, I'm studying online during this COVID crisis. And I was wondering what you thought about the value of our diploma in the end, do you think it will have the same value as before? Thank you very much for the podcast. I really enjoy listening to it every week. Well, thank you, Eugenie, for your voice message. Uh, so what do you think, uh, Lani or, or Justin? Uh, <laughs> because you, you, your teacher... <laughs> Your teacher, well, so you know, to start, <laughs> so to start out, I, I think that um, you know I'll say something that you know maybe is a bit controversial, which is um, I guess the way I view uh, university education is um, you know less like uh, job training and more as you know like preparation for life, and so you know i think that if i you know when i reflect on the sorts of things that i teach students in a first year class you know it's often these you know really simplified algebraic models of economics that you know you can't just take you know word for word and go apply in the real world you know we're trying to develop some intuition that can be used to think about things in a different way when they leave uh, school and if we take even a step further back from that you know, one of the biggest challenges of university is, you know, just trying to manage all your time and manage all your courses and, you know, deal with, you know, the disruptions of life, trying to, you know, like interfering with your ability to uh, juggle all of these different tasks simultaneously. And so, you know, that aspect of university uh, is still there, right? I mean, it's it's in a, you know, different context, right? And, and a more challenging context because some of those challenges are learning new technologies, adapting to our different learning styles, you know, et cetera. But, you know, the core idea that, you know, you have this, you know, problem of, you know, many different things to do and you have to try to figure out how to best manage them remains intact. And, you know, when you enter the workforce, you know, that's a lot of what work is, is here's a new problem. How are you going to deal with this? And you're going to use your past experience, which, you know, you developed in a, you know, kind of a artificial environment like a university uh, to help you, develop those skills you're going to need in the real world. And so, you know, I'm, I'm not going to go so far as to say, like, this situation is a blessing because it's so difficult, it's going to make the rest of your life better. Um, but what I will say is that that core feature of university where you're trying to figure out how to negotiate all of the different tasks of life uh, remains intact. And so I, I don't, you know, and I think the job market sees it the same way. They're not looking at your grades in any particular course to figure out if they want to hire you. They really want to see if you're the type of person who, you know, is capable of taking on new challenges. Uh, you know, if you, you know, know how to assess your own strengths and weaknesses and apply yourself to challenging new problems. And so I think that, you know, one of the things that people who lived through this year, if hopefully it is only this year, 
are going to be able to say when they reach the job market is, I had the toughest year of university of anyone, you know, in the last 20 or 30 years. And, you know, look how I did, you know, in my classes following that or, you know, look, I managed to negotiate this very challenging situation. There's nothing that's going to happen in this workplace that's going to be as hard. And so, um, you know, even though, you know, maybe there are some aspects of the instruction which might be different or not as good, I think the overall experience of meeting the challenge, coordinating your effort is still there. Well, uh, I guess I agree with you, Lania. Um, I think the, the value of diploma would be either the same or maybe even more because uh, it would be a, an even greater signal to, to show that uh, the students right now uh, have the capacity, uh, uh, a good capacity of adaptation uh, to new technology, to, to more stressful events. But also, as you say, uh, the university isn't only the academics. Uh, it's only one part of the university. And on that side, uh, well, I guess it's, I, I don't know what it, like the, um, the relation with the di diploma, but um, being at the university also means uh, being in the association, uh, also means uh, having a, a social life that you don't really have uh, really um, after that. Uh, and for that, for that side of the university, uh, well, every student right now is, is losing it uh, and we will maybe not have it anymore uh, for a few years now. So um, I guess there's, there's some stuff that can uh, improve the, the, the value of the diploma, but there's also some parts uh, which are more interpersonal that uh, also uh, can decrease maybe the, the value of diploma or maybe not the diploma as a, as a thing, but uh, the value of the university years. Yeah, you mean the value of the experience, right? So, is, yeah. um, so you know, currently I'm, I'm so I'm teaching to uh, to first year students who were, it's the first semester and they're, they that's how they're experiencing university for the first time. And I should actually I, I w I'm not going to say university because to me we're in a business school, we're not in the university. I keep saying this all the time. I see a major difference between the two. But before I get into my own rant, I would like to say hi to Eugenie. I think I recognize you. So it's uh, thanks for asking the question. Um, I actually think, um, even though you know this is not a job preparation thing, I think that people who are doing online learning right now are or distance learning are so much better equipped than people who have not been through this. You know, distance working, remote working is going to be part of the future, and there's so many people who just suck at it right now. They're just horrible at it, and if you can learn this soon. You're going to be just well poised to to adapt to other things, and so we see it already. Um, in, in terms of yeah, sure, the experience is not the same, and, and there's no doubt about it. As instructors, uh, to teachers, and professors, it's definitely not the same either. It's uh, it's everything takes more time. It's a lot of work, a lot of preparation. It's uh, it's a bit lonely as well. Um, we we try to in our Agir cohort, you know, we try to we have a, actually a lot of group projects which. Uh, some people might think, you know, group projects might be weird because it's a distance thing, but actually it's a great thing. It's a great way to, to break the isolation, you know, the fact that you're not alone in your basement all, the, all, all year long. And, uh, but in terms of the diploma itself, I, I will agree with, uh, with Lanny and Greg in the sense that nobody looks at your grades. I mean, just face it. If you're, it doesn't, of course, if you're a C student and you're an A student, it's going to make a difference, but this is not what this pandemic is going to change. Um, Moreover, there's many others, other ways of signaling quality in terms of you as a student or an individual. Um, there's recommendation letters. There's everything that you've done 
outside of just doing classes. Uh, all of that affects the value of, and I wouldn't say the diploma, it's just the value of who you are and, and uh, how, how, how well suited you are for such and such position. And I think that's, that's the way we should, uh, we should think about it. And uh, I, I'm, you know, I, I, I'm going to say it, I, I didn't think I was going to, but I think what you were saying, what you, your question, it very much relates to this article that came out in La Presse last week, you know, what's the value of the diploma? And in the sense, the value in the sense that I'm paying for something, I want to get, you know, my money's worth and I'm not getting my money's worth. Some people think that way. And uh, I'm not saying you do, Eugenia, definitely not, but some people do think that way. And um, there's this underlying accusation that uh, that somebody's making profit off of this, you know, so that the service that some students get, they feel it's not as good as if they were in person. And somehow somebody must be profiting off of this. And I guarantee that it's not the case. If you, uh, there's so much more resources being uh, mobilized to, to provide the, 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 the classes. And uh, I mean, teachers are, and I know so many colleagues that are working so much harder and are not being paid one cent more. You know, it's, we're, we're all in this together. We're all facing the same storm. And, um, and yeah, it's, it's, the experience is less enjoyable for, for students. It's definitely less enjoyable for, for professors as well. And it's definitely not, I should say, that's making money off of this. I can tell that it seems to me like they're really not going to come ahead this year financially. It's, uh, they're doing a lot of investments, very costly investments. The only people who are making any profit here are, are Zoom and all these uh, online solutions, but they should not be blamed for this. They're offering solutions. So, so it's just, it's, it's just a, what we call a negative shock and, in economics, and, and we all have to be, you know, make, be, be solidarity. Uh, what's the word? We all have to show solidarity here, and, you know, nobody's, nobody's trying to profit off of this. Well, and, and I'd actually take this one step further, which is you know, something that's happened with my class that I'm teaching this first year, you know, microeconomics class is we've completely reorganized the way the course is delivered, um, you know, mostly because of the, the way the technology changed. But in fact, you know, we've utilized this, you know, flipped classroom technique where, you know, students actually do the, the reading and lecture stuff on their own time. And we spend the class time working on exercises uh, and activities together. And, you know, the pedagogical research says that this is the most effective way to teach people um, in these kind of technical subjects like economics or engineering or, or so forth. And so actually this has kind of forced us into adapting uh, a more, you know, cutting edge teaching style. And I actually think that that in some ways, the way the course is being delivered, at least my course is being delivered, is better uh, than it was in the past. Albeit, you know, it would be better if we were doing it in a classroom altogether, right? It would be better still, of course. But I think there is a little bit of a trade-off here. I think that all of the efforts that went into providing the courses online actually also made the uh, courses better along certain dimensions. And so I, I guess I can sympathize with students who you know, you take a course once, you don't know what it would have been like had you taken it under normal circumstances. So you just assume this must be worse because the situation is more challenging. But I don't know that that's necessarily true. Um, so I, I think that there is the possibility that, um, you know, in fact, the quality is, is very, has remained very high. Um, and that, you know, the students' concerns are more, you know, based on kind of like, you know, their expectations or introspection and not necessarily on the, uh, on the facts on the ground, which isn't to say 
there aren't some places where you know people are just recording themselves and talking online and don't interact with the students and and some things have you know gone poorly but you know my experience at least at ashesa is that a tremendous amount of effort has gone into this just like justin said and in fact the quality of instruction i feel is is very high in spite of the technological limitations so if we summarize this so the the, the diploma basically is not is not worth any less it, the experience is just not as enjoyable and it's uh, it's a bit harder on the adaptation front and the psychological front of course let's not forget that but i i mean you know every there's always there's things that happen that make things a, a lot worse you know every time there's a reform like a school reform and you say well now we're going to have this new curriculum and and uh, and all of these classes are going to change people are always worried is my is my diploma going to be worth less and in practice it's really not the case i, I don't think that employers really look at this oh this is a 2019 cohort i really don't want to i really should downgrade the whatever grades they have i really should lower them by one half GPA's point, and and then that's how I should look at him. I don't think anybody does that. And so, Greg, you know, you're in school right now, and I don't want you to put yourself in a bad spot, but like, you know, do you ever have any of these feelings, like, you know, you're not, you know, getting the kind of education that you had hoped or expected, or at least that it's, you know. Um, even not living up to your expectations under the circumstances? Like, do you have the same kind of frustrations that other students have expressed? Mm, well, in terms of quality of, uh, of education, uh, I don't think it changed anything. Like, the I'm doing mat mathematics or economics, so it's basically, it's pretty lonely uh, area, you know. It's not like a, some uh, field of study where you have to, to talk with people. So I guess it doesn't affect that much my the quality of education. Uh, however, uh, I, I'm, yeah, I guess as most of the students, uh, I'm pretty frustrated uh, because of the um, the poor experience, like the the fact that all the little things you have uh, in the, in your everyday life, like uh, you go to the university, you you talk to you to your neighbor in class, uh, you can see the professor at the end, like all those little things that doesn't exist anymore, and you cannot repro yeah, and reproduce it. Life, uh, I mean, let's talk about that for a second. <laughs> I mean, that that's part of the experience, right? And this is a uh, Mm. It's tough, right? No, that, that's true. And even like the like the body and everything, like it's it's one of the one of the big aspect of the of the, the experience of, of university. And and so yeah, I, I guess it's yeah. The most of the people are, are frustrating because of the experience side, but not not mainly because the of the education in itself. Well, I'll I'll add this. I mean, uh, Greg, you, you've you're, you're a very good student you've always been and you've been doing a lot of stuff on the side and I think this uh, this remote learning is not affecting students equally I think those who are really very much uh, on the ball and who are very you know who are focused on their studies don't see this as such a challenge well, I think the challenge really comes from the category of students who are maybe more easily distracted or not so much into their studies uh, of course they're they want to uh, do a I should say, or whatever university diploma, they want to do that, but they also maybe are not focused only on the classes and, and the other aspects are, are are important to them as well. I'm not saying that they're not important to you, uh, Greg, of course they are, but what I mean is mm. people who are more easily distracted are probably going to suffer more because it's going to be more challenging for them to... I hear, I hear stories, you know, lots of stories of students who basically are doing their classes like they're listening to a podcast, like they're listening to us right now. You know, they have this... 
their uh, tab open, you know, on Zoom, and then they're doing other stuff, and this is just kind of background noise, and hopefully they'll, you know, they'll. Well, I think, you know, to, you know, sort of crystallize it into a positive message, right, the bottom line is, you know, that, that diploma, the value is going to be the same, and so ultimately, you know, we should all just be patient with ourselves as we try to figure out how to make this work. Right. There, the consequences for, you know, your first midterm in the middle of this first semester of, you know, distance learning, you know, may, it's probably not as great as it used to be, um, you know, when there was a more, you know, traditional setup. And now you can focus on, you know, just trying to figure out, you know, how to make it work for yourself and, you know, learn through that experience, knowing that the end result will still be something of the same value. I think that's one of the things that really worries me a lot is students being too hard on themselves, thinking, you know, normally I get A's on my midterm. Well, you know, the situation has been jumbled up a little bit. If you get a C plus on this midterm, it's not the end of the world. You know, you're just starting a new process of learning how to find things that work for you. And that process will be valuable, yet you sacrifice nothing on the back end in terms of the value of your diploma. So I hope that students can, you know, be kind to themselves and, you know, not be too stressed out about the new situation. But then they would have to be doing a better job than me because I am also, you know, worried about the situation day to day and how I'm going to perform at the level that I'm used to. And so I think all of us should, you know, recognize that, like, you know, Justin said, this isn't something that we're in together and, you know, we should be nice to each other. We'll see you next week for episode nine. See you. <laughs> see you. <laughs>